0: It's November 23rd, 2016, the day before Thanksgiving, and of course we want to welcome you to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, entrepreneurship, geekery, and everything in between. I'm Bert Lum.
1: And I'm Ryan Ozawa. To kick off today's show, we're going to hear about a couple of great projects. Shane Asselstein is going to be here to tell us about the upcoming International Hour of Code. And then Brendan, Brendan returns to tell us about a disruptive vision for education called the Moonshot Incubator.
0: And then after the break, we have Robbie Melton from HTDC and Cindy Goldstein from Ag matters, and they're going to be talking. We're going to be talking to them about the intersection of tech and agriculture. We
1: do welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation. You can always contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet. After the break, and first, we want to get to our news guests. So uh, we want to
0: first uh, welcome Shane Aselstein from. He's from Millilani uh, Elementary School. He's the tech integration specialist over there, but more than that, he's coordinating this thing called. Well, maybe he's. There's probably other people involved with the coordination of this entire c- hour of code, but we definitely want to talk to him about hour of code. Welcome to the show, St- Shane.
2: Thank you, Bert. Thank you for uh, inviting me.
0: Now, hour of code has been going on for what
2: a year or a couple years? Or how long, long has it been going on? It's been several years now. This is my third year, actually, and I believe it was has been started uh, four years ago. Mm-hmm. They've been doing hour the code. So,
0: so um, I I kind of heard about it last year, and and then. You know, I got to meet you over at Radford, and, you know, mm-hmm. there seems to be a, a lot of emphasis on your actually getting teachers really prepped up to get involved with Hour of Code. Tell us about that process.
2: Absolutely. So um, Hour of Code itself is that um, that one hour of code to demystify coding mm-hmm. and computer science, you know, get people interested in seeing that it is possible that any teacher can do it. And then I take it one step further, and actually I'm providing free PD and, uh, professional development training in Hawaii. Um, in which teachers can come and spend the entire day with me and learn exactly how to implement this with a curriculum, uh, following with data and recording and assessment and all that kind of stuff, and take it back to their schools and start implementing it.
1: Now, Hour of Code, again, it's been around for some time. In fact, I, w- I just recently uh, saw a, an article about how, you know, Disney likes to get involved. Ma- they made a new oh, right, a right. Moana-themed um, widget that you can use, and it comes with, again, curriculum for educators to use. There's partnerships with the Apple Store, so you can sign up at the Apple Store to do a workshop there, and they're always very popular. They're always pretty much sell out because they're free. Um, but it's a, this is an international thing, and I know that a big part of it is code.com. And you are the Hawaii uh, coordinator for code.org. So in terms of helping us understand
2: sort of the scope of this, what is code.org? Well, code.org is a nonprofit organization and they are backed actually I get this question asked a lot. Where does the money come from so that you can do this free training? And it is you're right, it's backing from Apple, um, from Facebook, from you know, Twitter, all of these big companies are backing this nonprofit to to provide monies for us to come out and train teachers for free. And where did code.org
0: sort of get the uh, initiative or the direction setting to want to establish this coding capability inside schools?
2: Well, um, essentially, you know, the the founder, -founder, co-founder, is um, is Hadi Partovi. And Mm -hmm. him and his brother realized that there's such a need for computer science uh, and jobs are being unfilled, left unfilled. I mean, 500,000 jobs currently being reported in the U.S., Uh, Hawaii has over almost 1,400 jobs that are unfilled in computer science. Um, And schools are not preparing the kids to fill these jobs. Mm -hmm. So they're not coming out with the skills that they need. And so um, their focus was to create a curriculum that teachers could use that integrated all the skills that they would need um, to pre prepared and get them started not just at high school, but we're talking at the kindergarten age. So from kindergarten to 12, they've got a curriculum that students can use to get prepared to take these jobs and take hold of those. Mm -hmm. And it
1: does make a lot of sense for industry to be involved, for outsiders to be involved, in part because when you're talking about educational curriculum, it's not necessarily an agile development process for that. And, you know, within five years, the platforms you might start, be, start teaching won't exist or won't be the preeminent platforms by the time you're done with a program like that. But uh, for Hour of Code, you set aside an hour and you sort of teach them the principles so they're not intimidated by it, as perhaps many people do. So uh, help me set the stage. If I came or if I was a student and they said, come into this classroom, let's do an Hour of Code, what would I experience?
2: All right. So the Hour of Code, um, the activities are created like that. They're, they're actually scaffolded within themselves. Teachers can come and pick uh, grade appropriate levels. Um, if you go to the hourofcode.com website, you can actually filter activities based on the age group you're working with, the subject matter that you want to focus on. You want it to be coding based within math, language arts, science. You can filter this down until it gives you a, a list of, of activities that you want to produce. To, to do. And then so teachers will take those activities and there are self-directed activities. Students can just log on and do it. And there's teacher-directed activities. Um, there are online activities and there's offline activities. So it provides a wide range and it doesn't have to be an entire school. Mm. I'm urging all teachers out there. Last year we had 338 activities in Hawaii. That's mm-hmm. amazing. The year before that we only had 40. So my first year as the Code.org facilitator I tried to drum up enough people to get interested in this. We had almost 350 activities, right. events.
0: So, is your sort of measure of success increasing that number year over year? So, you know, if you got it like maybe increased by tenfold, is it going to be tenfold, four thousand <laughs> next year?
2: <laughs> I, I, I hope, but actually, to be honest, it's the quality of the events too. Right. And what I'm noticing this year is I get a lot more people emailing me and asking, so exactly what kind of things do you think we should be doing? Uh-huh. And and it's no longer just that classroom doing it we have we 're uh, a huge increase in the amount of whole schools doing it this year too, which is nice.
1: Now, um, I know as you mentioned, there's different grade levels and, and different levels of ability that you can work with these because you can talk about just the basic concepts, and I know at right. the earliest level, you're just using sort of block modules that mm-hmm. you know you're not doing hard code, raw code, but at the uh, high school level or even at a, for, a, for a computer science class that is already starting to tinker with uh, JavaScript development or even iOS development, are there, is there curriculum available for the more advanced students? Are they focused on a particular platform or technology?
2: Um, absolutely not. No, there's not not focused on any one platform necessarily. But there are definitely JavaScript tutorials out there. There's uh, creating an actual app and, and that can be used on the phone and that kind of stuff. Um, the Code Code.org has uh, Play Lab for younger kids. Mm-hmm. They have App Lab for older kids, and App Lab is an amazing tool. They're coming up with a new one called Game Lab as well, which is going to be an amazing uh, advancement in their tools as well, um, more for the middle school. And then AppLab being for the final. Um, so Shane, I mean, are you the only guy out there
0: beating the you know beating the on the pavement, <laughs> going everywhere to try to en- en- enlist this army of teachers to
2: facilitate a, a, an hour of code? I sure hope I'm not. I mean, I've <laughs> got my friends, you know, and my 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 PLN helping me, but um, I am the only Code Code.org facilitator in Hawaii and. Yeah, I, I've contacted all the all the five hundred and sixty teachers I've trained to use the code.org and asked them, Are you gonna do an event? I'm wow. actually emailing them personally asking, What are you gonna do? How can I help you? Um my whole week, my week from the fifth to eleventh is booked with can you come and talk at this event? Can you come and talk at that event? And and so I've I've given myself out to those schools as well as our own events. So our school, Mominani Elementary, is going to have an event December 8th from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. And we're inviting industry. We're inviting our community to not have our kids code, but to have our kids show the the community and Mm. our industries how important this is to them.
1: Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I I also wanted to uh, kind of point out, I mean – and it's great that in this day and age, there's more and more self-directed, freely available resources out there for anybody, not just you know, students K through 12 or college, even beyond that, uh, students of life that can learn coding as well. And this program, uh, uh, code, uh, Hour of Code, is also available to charter schools. It's available Absolutely. to even homeschool students. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the resources there for someone who is just doing this on their own, perhaps
2: wanting to help their own child? Absolutely. Uh, again, I have uh, of I can have charter school teachers. I can have uh, private school teachers come in. Um, there's limitations to some of the homeschool I can do, but honestly, I've offered to have homeschoolers come in. I just can't provide them materials, mm-hmm. but they can come in and learn everything else everyone else does. And I I freely invite that because honestly, I think that everybody should get this opportunity, uh, just like most of us probably did. Um, you know, learning electric circuits and learning how to dissect a frog and and that kind of stuff, right? Nowadays, if kids don't know how apps work and why the internet is down, mm-hmm. they're lacking already. I mean, you can look on the, on the Code.org website, the Hour of Code website, and see that right now there are 100,000 events worldwide. So if you really think this doesn't matter to Hawaii, you're wrong. Because in a global economy, mm. if we're not preparing our kids from a young age they're already behind. So
0: where can someone go to see all the Hour of Code events and and how would someone, you know, that's not in school, perhaps help a parent? How would they actually help out?
2: All right, so you can go to the hourofcode.com website, no spaces, just hourofcode.com. Mm-hmm. There's activities links, there's a how to get started link, and then there's also the how to help us promote this link. And of course, if you search hour of code.org and Hawaii, my name will come up mm. and I'll I'm helping everybody. My email box is so full in December; it's not funny.
1: (laughs) Now, the Hour of Code is part of Computer Science Education Week, so when does? I mean, that's pretty much when all of these things will
2: happen. When does that run? Yeah, so uh, Computer Science Education Week is from December fifth to December eleventh. But we do encourage people not if they cannot make it that week; they've already got plans, whatever. Any time of the year, get it kick started, get it going, and then get trained and start using this. All of the training we provide is free. You know, all the materials we provide is free. There's no reason not to.
0: And and of course, uh. After the event is done, will you still be continuing to evangelize sort of oh, Code.org yes. and Hour of Code throughout the rest of the year as well, into 2017?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, my goal is to train 500 teachers every year. Okay. And so that's my goal is to get them out there and get them teaching computer science. Excellent.
0: Very good. Thanks a lot, Shane, for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, next up is uh, Brendan Brennan, and he's from the Janus Group. He's joining us to talk about something called the Moonshot Incubator. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Great to be back. Yeah, so you're always mm. doing something interesting. I mean, the last time I, you know, you were here. You're doing the uh, Google Glass, right? Right. <laughs> but, but remember that. Oh, Didn't need to laugh that hard, but uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm very interested in this um, uh, moonshot incubator. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of uh, what is that exactly?
3: Well, I think the origins in the incubator really starts with a, a question that we we ask kids every day. Right. The, the question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And if you think. Deeply about that question. It's really kind of condescending in a way, right? We're, we're telling these kids that they have to wait to matter, right? That we have to, they have to wait until we're done teaching them and raising them and training them to really matter in this world. And what we're seeing is that that kind of thinking is pandemic across our education system, not just here in Hawaii, nationally, some, mostly globally, right? you know we still have kids in desks and rows and we still have kids in you know with bell schedules and you know off-white antiseptic rooms and it's really meant to prepare them for an industrial revolution that's it's done now we're we're moving on right but our education system hasn't so what we're trying to do here is is to really change how education happens and help those kids start mattering now right? We want to get them at the center of transforming their community to creating these big ideas, these moonshot solutions to the great challenges of their day so that we can make them the agents of change in their education system. Because let's be frank, as adults, we haven't done a very good job of changing it. So let's give them the power to do it. Well, I mean, I, I like both of the concepts you bring together, you know, certainly a moonshot.
1: Right. Uh, we, we quote that speech even at where I work at my day job. And, and uh, you know, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. And an incubator, <laughs> because it's call? about, it's about, about uh you know fostering these things people think of say uh, even a makerspace as an incubator but places where these things can happen but what specifically is it that you are trying to build that would fit in or as you said disrupt the educational system through the students
3: so I, what we're trying to do is to change education to where we're we're getting them ready for jobs that don't exist right to use technology that hasn't been invented yet right to solve problems we can't imagine mm-hmm. and that's a tall order how do you do that well you have them start now creating those jobs and building that technology and start solving those problems. So we want those kids to matter now. So we've come to this approach that we think is going to work is we want to engage these kids outside of their traditional classrooms in these hyper-collaborative community-based Maker spaces, right? Give them all the tools of the modern economy that they can to build out their ideas, and then plug them into a local, national, and global network of professionals and STEM experts to help guide them along the way as they build out their moonshot ideas.
0: Now, I tend to like to think of uh, physical spaces. Where would this hyper-collaborative makerspace space actually reside. Is that something in in Hawaii? Is that something on the yeah. mainland? Is it you know? Is it both? I mean, what?
3: So we've we've already the this project has already been piloted to some effect at the University Laboratory School. So there is a proof of concept for it here. There are proof of concepts for it other places. We really okay. think that Hawaii is special and that it can serve as the nation's laboratory for growing up an idea like this, right? We're, we're secluded. We're the most isolated landmass. We don't have a lot of the the talking and the pressures that are coming from the mainland institutions. So we think we can grow it out here in Hawaii first and, and serve as that pilot for the rest of the country and ultimately the world because our dream is is that the more of these that we have throughout the nation, the bigger that network of empowered kids that we can make, and the more institutional change we can affect.
1: Now, a makerspace or a, a moonshot incubator, a, a creative space for, for students, does, of course, require resources. Um, mm-hmm. I know, and I want to talk about your uh, your Kickstarter and how that's right. going to be raising funds for sort of this pilot. But broadly speaking, um, if this is not going to be part of or funded by a institutional educational institution, right. how do you see some uh,
3: innovative, like, The idea like this being funded and sustained over time? Okay, so there's a couple parts to this. First of all, it's got to be public and private partnerships, right? We all have a stake in our kids being able to develop the skills just like Shane was talking about. Um, We're already behind when it comes to those things. So obviously getting funds from grants, private institutions, things like that. But we actually think that the student ideas are potential to fund this thing sustainably into the future and grow it exponentially. Um, One part of it is the makerspace. The other part is eventually big ideas are going to be coming out of this, big moonshot ideas. And we want to help those kids to create startup companies and nonprofit organizations so they can scale those ideas across the world. So, you know, if you think about... uh, like Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook, right? If he was able to raise um, capital through his community, because we can do that now with the 2012 Jobs Act, right, anybody right. and their grandmother can invest in private startups. So imagine if Zuckerberg in White Plains, New York, he had raised 5% of, of, of the capital that he needed from 100 people in the community. Today, those 100 people would be worth $167 million each. Mm. Now, think about the impact that 100 newly minted millionaires can have in communities like Nanakuli or Puna, because they decided to invest in that local kids startup project. So we think that through this, the kids will develop the ideas, will help them create the companies, and we can create the funding to sustain. Oh, so
1: like a typical accelerator, there would perhaps be a a small equity stake in the idea that you've helped foster and bring into the market. A a community equity stake,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. So in terms of a student coming in, I've, I've kind of heard the pitch. Now I could maybe get involved. A student comes into it, you give them the access to this hyper-collaborative space, how do they actually go back into the classroom
3: and implement something that would ultimately change from the student level up? So... So that's kind of the, the the secret here. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it on public radio. But we, <laughs> um, but really what our goal here is to transform our classrooms all over the country, and, and here in Hawaii especially. Um, we think that when these kids go to their regular school day, four days a week, but then on that fifth day, that 20% time, they come to this Moonshot Laboratory, they're going to create hyper amounts of student agency and empowerment. We're hoping that those kids go back to their traditional classrooms and they start asking pertinent questions like, excuse me, miss, you know, how is this science lab going to help me create a car that runs on water? Or how is this going to help me to cure cancer? Or how is this going to help me to cure the social injustices in my community? So that all of a sudden the students are asking for the education they're getting to be purposeful.
0: Okay, so the hyper collaborative space is kind of a catalyst. Right. And then you get them back into the classroom and they catalyze maybe some change. How much time do you do you are you going to give yourself for this pr- process to actually you know, sort of change the educational delivery mechanism?
3: Well, it's definite until the job is done, right? I mean, it's, it's not going to be easy to, yeah, yeah. to disrupt the entire American right, education right, right, system. Right, right. Probably more than two weeks, I okay, think. Okay, okay. I, <laughs> I just wanted to clar- clarify that. <laughs> but I, but I, think, I think, you know, eventually it's going to take on a life of its own as it scales. Um, if we can do this right and we can get schools and kids and community interested, invested in the success of student ideas, nothing's going to stop it. The problem is, is that we have not allowed kids, we have not unleashed them on our world. Um, But once we do that, you can't put the genie back in the bottle.
1: Okay. Well, everything has to start with a single step, of course. Right. Um, and right now you are doing some crowdfunding mm-hmm. right. to to really br- bring this idea into fruition. Tell us about that campaign and how's it going.
3: So, we're we're trying to get off with a, a modest $75,000 raise um, so we can build one of these out here in um, in Hawaii. Obviously, it's going to take more money than that, but we really want communities to be a part of raising those funds and not just go out to grants and, and private companies. So, at indiegogo.com, we are we have about two weeks left to raise some funding for this project. Uh, We want to invite the entire Hawaii community to to become vested in the success of this idea as well as student ideas.
0: Okay, very good. So we will put the link to that Indiegogo uh, Indiegogo website up uh, on our show notes for later on tonight. Brendan, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll talk about AgTech with
1: Robbie Melton and Cindy Goldstein. How can technology improve an age-old industry like agriculture? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions. As a part of the conversation, you can give us a call, 941-3689, or toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689.
0: And feel free to tweet us. We're in the studio live. You can get us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
1: It has been said of pianist Christopher O'Reilly's playing that it is laced with an otherworldly elegance that can't be duplicated. On December 3rd at 4 p.m., O'Reilly performs in HPR's Atherton Studio on our own Bosendorfer Piano. Tickets to this premium event, including a post-concert reception with the artist, are at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management
0: work, relationships, health, child-rearing, all benefit from embracing gratitude. Gratitude is
1: this rich, complex emotion that we can pin that to
2: a specific location of the brain is amazing to me.
4: Hi, I'm Susan Sarandon.
1: Join
5: me for the science of gratitude from PRI, Public Radio International.
1: Thanksgiving Day at 5 p.m., Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and
0: Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to Bike Marks Cafe. I'm Burt Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Robbie Melton and Cindy Goldstein. Uh, Robbie is, of course, the CEO and president of the High Tech Development Corporation here in the state of Hawaii and, of course, uh, has a unique, I think, position of helping to drive
1: some of these key economic Initiatives. Sydney, meanwhile, is with Ag Matters. She is an agricultural consultant and works with startups, including at Blue Startups. And yes, she is uh, one of the brilliant advisors for a startup that I'm involved in that went through Blue Startups called Smart Yields.
0: Well, good. And I, I think, uh, you know, we have a pretty good representation. I being the only one that's not directly involved with, you know, some sort of tech ag. Uh,
1: you work in your garden quite a bit.
0: I know, but I don't use a whole lot of tech. That's just like a trowel and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bike Marks Cafe.
4: Aloha. Yeah. Aloha. So, Thank Robbie, you. let's
0: start with you because, I, you know, I, I sort of introduced you as having this broad perspective. And I know as the um, president of, of High Tech Development Corporation, I mean, you're seeing a lot of different things kind of go by in terms of uh, whether it's you know whether it's uh clean energy or maybe it's you know like the you know I know you have a wet wear wednesday thing coming up so there's a lot of, of development uh in terms of coding uh you know there's things like I know the the geriatric tech park uh, you you talked about that there was a broadband there was kind of a broadband tech park now what is it that is um on the horizon in terms of some of this ag opportunity that we're now looking at in terms of economic development?
4: Uh, There's lots of opportunities here. And just so you know, your garden is full of technology because agriculture, flowers, plants, is all science and technology. I
0: don't disagree with it. Yes.
4: So actually, we're uh, in the middle of helping a couple of initiatives that are promoting economic development. One with the Agricultural Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. They're building an ag tech park up in Wetmore Village. So um, as you know, it used to be supported by the dole industry there. And so now they've purchased a number of parcels of land that are now state-owned so we can keep it ag. So we don't have to worry about it being developed. Uh, We're now going through master planning for processing facilities, educational facilities, um, and then eventually value-added production as well. So that's very exciting to help small farmers. They already have some farmers up there doing some very, very creative things. And then also in Kauai, we're working with um, Keikaha Ag Association, to look at developing a 5,000-acre incubator for agriculture and farmers there. That would include um, not only livestock production but as well as, as as fruit trees and vegetables and things like that. So really that will help preserve the community there. And eventually we'll develop some ag tourism on that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Now when you talk about ag incubators, is it primarily – let's say, testing out new types of uh, crops that might be well-suited to the environment? I mean, what what would be included in an ag incubator?
4: Well, there's different models of ag incubators. For the one in Kauai, they're looking at straight farming, mm-hmm. so straight production. So it's actually bringing, you know, giving a farmer a parcel of land that they would lease, and then they would help that farmer go through the whole growth experience and then help them get through market and develop the business plan for that. So it's straight production. There's other things where you're doing um, ag incubators where they're doing value-added production. What they're trying to do in Whitmore Village is a combination: is to bring companies like Smart Yields up there and other companies that are doing interesting things in ag technology that the farmers could benefit from. So it's a melding hmm. of traditional farming with new ways of doing things like we saw these groups from Japan so they actually farm with their iPad mm-hmm. they don't get into the tractor anymore the tractor is totally operated by the iPad
0: so it's it's functioning as a uh, sort of a uh, autonomous vehicle
4: yes exactly and they do plowing and they do harvesting mm-hmm. so they don't even have to get on the tractor it's amazing so there's and then you've got precision agriculture with the drones that can go out and and do all the soil measurements and pesticide measurements and determine what's missing, what needs to be added. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, Cindy, you know... um We talk about ag tech, and Bert mentioned a number of other areas that Hawaii is investing in, including clean tech and renewable energy, and I think one thing is key is that a lot of these growth areas are focused on not, you know, the next Instagram, but really solving significant challenges and problems for humankind, whether it's our consumption of fossil fuels or, in the case of agriculture, feeding 9 billion people by the year 2050. You know, do we have enough farmland? Do we have enough farmers? Are we... uh, Wasting too much of our food—all of these things are challenges that, that reasonably can be assumed can be solved or helped greatly through technology. But I like Robbie. I mean, I kind of wanted to get your take on Hawaii in particular. You know, they once said that uh, Hawaii used to have such a strong agricultural base that it could feed a million people without a problem. Now we're importing ninety percent of what we consume. Um, is it too late, or if not, how much? we see uh, is possible now through modern technology to help Hawaii as far as agriculture is concerned?
5: Well what we used to see was development of technology specifically for the crops we grew here in the era of sugarcane and pineapple. There were actually research institutes here in the state to specifically help with the growth of those crops to increase yield, to have better quality. And what we see now is the application of technologies that have been used in many other arenas for many other types of uses that we now see being applied to agriculture. So when we talk about this concept of precision agriculture, you know you may have your new piece of land there in Keikaha or up at Whitmore Village maybe where a farmer is coming in to farm and you look at that field not as just one big piece of land where each part of that is the same. And with precision agriculture what you want to do is as you're doing your farming to look at the inputs, fertilizer, water, and to farm in a way where you're not applying more water than you need uh, to conserve resources. It's a lot of what the focus is now.
0: Now, Cindy, you bring up a good point, and I I think uh, I needed to to hear it from you to kind of better understand what was going on because – the ag industry with sugar and pineapple—that was kind of a, a monocrop. But there were research institutes that were very supportive of, of those, uh, uh, let's say, agricultural efforts. And I often wondered why, once you know, all the land sort of maybe stopped doing sugar production, why different types of crops didn't naturally follow. And is that because the the let's say the techniques or the leveraging of getting high yields from the land for all these various crops wasn't quite there for us to take advantage of?
5: So with diversified agriculture, it's a great concept. You want farmers to be trying new crops, uh, crops that have high value, Mm -hmm. where there would be a niche for growing those crops in Hawaii. But each crop has its own unique set of needs. So whether we're talking about the cacao Farmers that are now planting more cacao, so we have, just like we do with coffee, having a cocoa industry for chocolate. Um, Each crop that you look at is going to have its own needs, uh, its diseases, Mm -hmm. and learning how to grow a new crop, especially where we have so many microclimates in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. different areas. It does take a fair amount of basic research, and farmers are great observers And very good at understanding how to grow the crop. So if you combine that with some of the new technologies, and for instance, smart yields, which we um, have talked about a little bit, a company that has sensors that they'll put in fields, you know, you have a better opportunity to optimize the conditions for growing that plant. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: And, uh, Robbie, you know,
1: we talk uh, about these these agricultural tech parks or ways to kind of advance or support innovation in this space, but I know one of the challenges, and this is not just limited to agriculture, is really entrenched or established industries that might be challenged by or even resist the influence of technology. And, I mean, agriculture is probably one of the oldest industries on Earth, um, What do you see, in particular, perhaps even in Hawaii, in terms of our ability to adapt as quickly as it seems like we might have to to be able to maximize our agricultural resources with technology?
4: Well, I think the biggest um, barrier right now is funding. Mm. So as you know, in agriculture, farmers do not make a lot of money. It's a lot of hard work. They get very little in return. So they don't have the money money to go out and buy drones or rent drones or or do any of some of the more sophisticated technology. So either co-ops need to develop, or that's the point of having the ag tech park where you have shared um, equipment so that farmers aren't strapped with purchasing, you know, these $500,000 pieces of equipment, but everybody sort of shares in that cost. So I think the biggest impediment is is just the funding. I think the younger farmers are more open to the new new ways of doing things, and and so you see a, a difference and a shift in that.
1: Well, I mean, Cindy, let me ask you about that. I mean, you've worked with farmers for decades, um, and one of the questions or one of the concerns that many people have is that because of traditional agriculture and the way that society and technology has moved is that the subsequent generations are less incentivized to continue working in that space. They see other opportunities. I mean, is there or what do you see in terms of the next generation of farmers? Are, is there one? And are they coming up with these tools in hand?
5: So we definitely do have a next generation of farmers here in Hawaii. Some of them are younger people that are going into farming as beginning farmers. But what we see now is a trend where we have a lot of immigrant farmers from Southeast Asia in particular that are some of the new farmers And many of them are bringing new crops to Hawaii, some new specialty vegetable crops, Asian vegetable crops. We see a diversification of the crops that are being grown. I think the bright light in this is almost everybody now is carrying a cell phone. They've got their mobile device. They might have their iPad or their their handheld computer with them in the truck. And a lot of these technologies really do involve things that are easily tied to computer apps, um, apps that we can have on our cell phones, uh, information that can be easily uploaded to the farmer. So I think that's a bright spot in the implementation of the technology is that it's made a big difference in the fact that everybody's carrying their smartphones or their tablet with them. Mm. So, um, Cindy,
0: I mean, you you, uh, bring up a a great point in terms of you know. Hawaii has always looked at diversified agriculture ever since sugar uh started to decline. But the, you know, and and Robbie you said that the farmers, you know, they tend to lose money. There's a ramp-up period for them to get the crop that they're trying to test out to be in in a in a higher yield. Do you know Cindy, I mean, where how sh- how much shorter you might be able to get that interval uh with some of the technology instead of perhaps, you know, going 10 years it could, you know, maybe decrease it by X number of years?
5: Well, I think these applications are out there, and now they're just being implemented in agriculture. So it's very rapid. Um, some of the sorts of automation and, let's say, um, precision Application of your water of your fertilizer of some of your other inputs, robotics doing harvesting that might be um, something that 's a little bit more akin to a sort of robotic type of application so I think we 're seeing quicker implementation, but as you know we think about can farmers afford the technology? I think that really is where we see the difficulty there's uh, i don 't see a lot of Resistance to embracing the use of Mm -hmm. technology, but the affordability of the implementation
4: is something that I think uh, we're seeing more and more of. Robbie? So I think you bring up a good point, and as you were talking, I'm thinking maybe we need a fund for farmers similar to what we have for manufacturers to help them purchase equipment. We have a grant for manufacturers, so maybe there's a grant to help farmers purchase equipment. Well, I, th- I
1: think that the expensive equipment is is a significant challenge. And in fact, most of the solutions out there are really have been developed over many, many years for large farms who have large budgets and, you know, can make that kind of capital investment for the long term. Um, I know that uh, with smart yields, we've looked at, for example, USDA grants and ways that farmers already do get some funding or low interest or no interest mm-hmm. loans to make these kind of investments. The question is, you know, can you use that same loan that you would have used to buy a tractor to instead buy? Uh, a drone and an automated watering system, for example. But I think that's one path to go. Now, Robbie, uh, your work also involves policy development. Yes. And um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is what can a state government do to help foster, if we are saying that agriculture is as critical to Hawaii's future as I think it is, um, what, are, what can the state do to help that? Is it get out of the way? Is it, you know, Provide these kind of uh, funding opportunities? Is there a policy change that that would be a challenge that could be removed, a roadblock that could be removed? So
4: so one of the roadblocks that the state has been doing to remove the roadblock is purchasing land so that they can do long-term leases to farmers so that they're able to get loans because that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks right now from my understanding is being able to have a long-term lease so that banks would be willing to give them a loan Again, I think if we had some some new funding for farmers to encourage them to do that, I think the Ag Tech Park and what ADC is doing is a good step because if you have a community together working together, that sort of helps alleviate some of the difficulties that farmers have. So if we can do more of those replicated around the state, I think that will help agriculture quite a bit.
0: You know, Cindy, uh, you know, you've been in the egg business, you've you're a consultant for uh, you know, companies that are uh, you know, doing diversified agriculture. You've seen the decline of sugar. I mean, and that's been happening over, you know, the past 15-20 years. Why what is it about now that there's a lot of attention in terms of the technology in terms of perhaps policy in terms of maybe funding what is it about now that it you know that it's happening as opposed to let's say you know 10 years ago
5: well we certainly want to be more food self sufficient and that's something that i think has been a growing interest and what we see now on the horizon is food safety. And as we talk about ag technology, I think what we are going to see looking to the future is how do we use technology that is affordable and easy to implement to help farmers meet the needs of food safety certification.
1: Actually, mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's an excellent thing to bring up mm-hmm. because when we talk about government, um, there's also the matter of food safety, which does mean regulations, requirements, certifications, which in many cases – does mean an expense or a cost for the farmer. So that's kind of the other side of that, that equation. Um, we want to continue this conversation and learn more about uh, ways the technology can transform, perhaps, agriculture. We're going to hold that thought. We're going to t- continue this conversation after a short break with Robbie Melton and Cindy Goldstein about ag tech.
0: And, of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can call us at 941 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
1: NPR's From the Top with host Christopher O'Reilly returns to Hawaii Island for a live taping on November 30th. HPR presents the show at the Lunalilo Center on the Kamehameha School's Hawaii campus, featuring some of the school's students in an original Hawaiian-language opera. See From the Top live in Keao before it airs nationally. Visit HawaiiPublicRadio.org for more. Supported in part by the Hawaii Youth Symphony. This Saturday on Bridging the Gap, I'm playing an eclectic mix of music to help you shake that Thanksgiving food coma. We'll hear some new music from Giles Peterson, Savannah Project, Kate Renata, and the Olympians. I'm Mr. Nick. Join me this Saturday evening from 6 to 8 for Bridging the Gap, here on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Hawaii Pacific University and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Robbie Melton and Cindy Goldstein about how tech can impact Hawaii's agriculture industry. And, of course, uh,
0: you can give us a call. That number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, we were venturing into something that is going to really impact agriculture on the federal level. Uh, which is food safety. Cindy, what is happening that is now going to require everybody to be more, uh, I guess, diligent about recording whatever happens on the farm?
5: So as many things with the federal government, it has its own acronym called FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act. Mm. And this is something that all farmers across the country will need to comply with, but it's also there is a role for state departments of ag and departments of health in the food safety regulations. And essentially what this means is that farmers will need to implement certain practices both on the farm as well as in the way that it's processed, packed, and shipped, where you are keeping records of activities in the field so that you can trace a cucumber back to the field that it was grown and harvested in, and then you're tracking this produce along the way in a chain of custody manner. So this involves a lot of record keeping, which is very amenable to the use of technology Mm -hmm. and very simple technologies. But you are going to, as a farmer, need to be able to track much better than farmers sometimes do now.
0: And right right now, uh, what would be considered the the norm? Uh, You know, if you go to any of the, let's say, farms here in Hawaii, is there a let's say, a performance level that they are currently meeting and do they have to sort of up their game to get sort of compliance?
5: So what we see happening is it becomes the meeting the needs of who you are supplying to. So if you're supplying to a particular wholesaler or a particular market, you may need to comply with their requirements for food safety. And that's where we often see the standard set now as we get to a more national standard where it's very even in how it's implemented. But yes, things like the testing of water for organisms, a tracking where your product came from, and how you handle it is something that is being required now by some of the distributors and some of the um, stores and markets. Mm.
1: Is it safe to say, though, that... being prepared for this technology can help and certainly ease the pain. But, uh, you know, it seems challenging, as you'd mentioned, as Robbie mentioned, a lot of farmers don't make a lot of money. It's already kind of a challenging industry to be in. But now we're saying you're going to be doing effectively what sounds like more paperwork. Are they seeing dollar signs when they hear FSMA? Are they seeing uh, or are they still seeing opportunity? Because I like how you said that, you know, the market drives a lot. If Whole Foods says we're not going to buy your produce if you don't have this information, that's an incentive to start collecting that information. But is it broadly something that is seen as uh, an additional burden, or still you can turn that into an opportunity?
5: Uh, it elicits many groans in the room <laughs> when the topic comes up. Mm. I think farmers are trying to understand how to comply. The opportunity is that if you have all of the certifications, you will have many more market opportunities. Now, you
0: know, with the additional layer of, let's say, the Uh, record-keeping and perhaps the technology that enables you to do that, do you foresee
5: prices going up as a result of implementing FSMA? It may. It may require the building of a packing shed. It may require having an additional employee to handle the compliance and things that we think of as basic and simple. For instance, you may need um, water available at an area where you don't have it. So you may have to do some plumbing to bring in water, to bring in certain sorts of changes to your facility, to your infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I see direct costs associated with it.
1: Now, Robbie, as you've traveled around and seen some other uh, ag tech uh, projects initiatives unfold, perhaps, for example, in Asia? are you, I mean, they, they don't have FSMA, but I would imagine they're also struggling with things like food safety. Have you seen successful deployments of technology to help with traceability, for example?
4: Yeah, so there's been a number of companies already doing track and trace, but not through the FSMA. Um, but right now, a lot of times, when you hear these the E. coli outbreaks, they can trace the food back to a certain farm. So already they're doing certain measures now that when it leaves the farm, they can track what exact farm it was on, where it came from, and where it went to. So you see there's technologies for that, but now there's going to be more implementation of more detailed technology to just cover FSMA. So like Cindy Cindy said, there's a lot of groaning, and there's a lot of fear because it's so burdensome. So the small farmers may fall away, because mm-hmm. they may not be able to keep up, so it is a a big concern for farmers here in Hawaii. So, help me, as a
0: you know, as a very sort of not involved with the industry perspective, and just maybe a consumer of of you know, produce. Uh, what other benefits would come as a result of the implementation of this level of of let's say record keeping?
5: I think oftentimes. Um, We find that farmers don't do a great job of record keeping and don't always know how much money they're making, what it costs to produce a particular crop. So I think what will be involved with this will be, and this is not difficult record keeping, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. being more disciplined in record keeping, I think some technologies that already exist, things like barcoding, where you barcode a box or you put a chip. RFID, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you're doing your harvesting, the container that you put it in has a chip so that you can then track the movement. So I think these are very useful for inventory and for understanding what your yields are and where your product's going. And I think the implementation will be difficult for some, but these are not technologies that are new.
1: Um, breaking away from food safety for a moment, um, you did mention the phrase uh, precision agriculture. That's certainly something that Smart Yields is focused on. And you mentioned drones. And there's a lot of research happening across many sectors in the use of UAVs and the information and data that can be collected through relatively inexpensive and quickly deployed uh, technology versus, say, a satellite or even an airplane. Uh, so, Cindy, you mean what do you see as the opportunity? Uh, because I know Hawaii is, for example, a test bed for FAA research into uh, drone use, um, what do you see as some of the strongest opportunities that that a drone would offer for
5: agriculture? I think monitoring the crop health. So, you know, we often see a field and a farmer knows their fields very well. And they may say, you know, that part of the farm has never performed very well. So I tend not to put my highest value crops there. So I think being able to break down your field or even greenhouses one greenhouse may perform better than another having a better understanding of that and it gives the farmer a more um, more refined overview Mm. of their production on their farm and again we go back to sustainable agriculture concepts with precision agriculture where not every part of the farm may need the same amount of water the same amount of fertilizer And this also helps a farmer more quickly identify where there is a need for correction.
1: So a drone might have different kinds of sensors, infrared, moisture, something like that, and certainly it would be faster than walking your farm or taking measurements that way.
5: And remember, fields aren't always right next to each other. You may have one field over in Cunea, another field up at Whitmore, and maybe something down in, you know, Wailua. So not everything's contiguous, and this is very helpful to be able to monitor fields real-time, just to have real-time, up-to-date information for decision-making.
0: Well, you know, we're having a great conversation here with uh, uh, with Cindy Goldstein, egg consultant, along with Robbie Melton from the High Tech Development Corporation about sort of egg and technology. We want to welcome uh, Pualani from Kailua to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show.
4: Hey, thank you. Sure. So my question was, um, you know, you have been mentioning a little bit about how things have changed, you know, since sugar has um, sort of gone out. And um, big agribusiness uh, has come in, in some places, filling that void. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do you see their presence as shaping policy or maybe, um, you know, making use of these technologies? And, and if they're using these technologies, would they be in a position to share them with smaller farmers? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how are they impacting uh, state?
0: Policy. That's a that's a great question, Pualani. Uh, Cindy, I saw you raising your hand. You want to tackle
5: that one? Sure. Um, well, something that goes back to our years of agriculture, the irrigation infrastructure systems in Hawaii were largely maintained by the plantations. And now we still see some of the larger agriculture companies being involved with maintenance of the irrigation systems. As far as transferring the technologies and the understanding of principles for lowering inputs in farming, you know, we do see times when there are field days where there'll be individuals that come and share information about irrigation methods to reduce use of uh, water or to more accurately predict the use of water. Things like cover crops weren't necessarily a technology, but it's a farming method. We see some of the larger farms developing soil conservation practices that are shared with other farmers, including the use of cover crops, which in the end helps suppress pests and reduce the water moving off of fields. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Whether there are many large farms or some nearby small farms, I like how you mentioned pests, it's not a problem that just affects one person. So certainly if a uh, large company can come up with a solution at scale, it would easily and should be shared with probably a a smaller farm. Um, So, uh, Robbie, do you have a thought on that? I mean, certainly when we're looking at uh, even court cases on Kauai and such and concerns over large-scale agricultural operations having an impact on a small community. Um, is there an opportunity there to to be more cooperative with the with local communities?
4: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, that we're working with uh, Kejaha on possibly doing an ag incubator there, and they already have the infrastructure developed. So they have drip irrigation there. They have hydroelectric plant there. So when these new farmers come on board... They can already take advantage of that, so that reduces their water costs and it reduces their electricity so there is some sharing of that so we would love to see more of that happen here as things transition
0: Well so, so Robbie, you know in terms of um, you know policy and, and I know you're going to be spending a lot of time when a new session starts up are there I think uh, in terms of let's say the large corporate um, ag businesses in Hawaii, are there interests? Different from the smaller farmers that are out there, and in terms of your policy, you know introductions. How do you balance that?
4: Well, I haven't really worked much in. So we we do tech, right? So I haven't really worked much in the ag policy. I don't know. If Cindy has an answer to that because we haven't really dealt with well, ag I, policy. I, I, I guess
0: maybe part of the question was you know if you're going in and asking for money to support a sustainable egg industry, you're going to be, by just the nature of that question, going to be putting yourself into sort of the egg conversation, right?
4: So most of the ag legislation would come from Department of Agriculture or the ADC. That is not something that HTDC would actually enter into. We might testify mm. in support of that, but the legislation would not necessarily come from us.
1: Well, for, so I guess, Cindy, I mean, your general thoughts in terms of uh, one might guess, I'll just uh, throw out that maybe uh, when you're talking about large ag or big ag, they understand the process, they understand policymaking, they understand lobbying, whereas I'm not sure if small farmers feel they have a voice in terms of um, being heard or, or helping drive policy. Is that something that you're seeing in your consulting work in terms of being part of what a farmer needs to be thinking about?
5: So one of the other hats that I wear is uh, with Hawaii Farm Bureau, Mm -hmm. and the Hawaii Farm Bureau Federation is an organization that supports all farms, large farms, small farms, and um, regardless of the type of farming method, I'm very supportive of organic agriculture and all sectors. And I think being involved with Hawaii Farm Bureau is one way that farmers do have direct access to being able to talk with legislators. And I would just like to mention the passing of Representative Cliff oh. Suji, mm-hmm. yeah. who had been a longtime chair, time, of the House Agriculture Committee. Very wonderful person to work with. Did a lot to support Hawaii's agriculture and just so wanted to mention that. But. Um, Any individual who wants to speak with a legislator about their concerns, I think one of the things we see in particular is invasive species that have a significant impact on agriculture. And every year we'll see bills that Hawaii Farm Bureau puts forward that would benefit all farmers when we start looking at support for suppressing the invasive species and how to work with controlling invasive species and their impact On crops. So, yes, there are ways that uh, individuals can be involved, and Farm Bureau is one way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and
1: absolutely. I mean, the coffee borer beetle doesn't know where a TMK property parcel line is. That's (laughs)
5: right.
0: So, do you, um, Robbie, do you foresee any kind of. Initiatives that we should perhaps pay attention of that sort of have this intersection between ag and tech coming up in the next uh, session?
4: So the bills haven't been released yet. Ah. So once that happens, you can have us back in February. (laughs) Okay. And then we can can talk more about that. So this would be for like the ag
1: tech part? For the
4: ag tech, yes, or any of our tech bills. But, yes, so we'll be tracking So ag is very important to HTDC because it is very Mm technology-oriented. And mm so we definitely keep a pulse on it, and that's why we work closely with the ADC and Department of Ag.
0: Well, before I turn it over to uh, Cindy for some closing remarks, I mean, you have some upcoming events that you wanted to share?
4: Yes, so we have our monthly Wetware Wednesday coming up on November 30th, and it's going to be very exciting because Dev League is – which is a, a coding boot camp. They will be celebrating their one hundredth graduate. Oh so wow. yes, we're inviting the governor to attend. Mm-hmm. We hope he'll show up. And so it's very exciting for them. To have that celebration. Yeah, we
1: were talking this morning about, uh, or this earlier this show. Sorry mm-hmm. about um, coding in education. Mm-hmm. So excellent. Now, Cindy, mm. apart from how great SmartYields is, what <laughs> uh, in your work? What is the next big milestone you see in terms of what we should be watching for in terms of Hawaii agriculture and perhaps technology?
5: Well, I think there are a lot of opportunities for application. And I would go back to something rather basic, which is supporting local agriculture. And we hear Mm. a lot of talk about that. But that means buying locally produced crops, supporting farmers markets, community supported ag programs, Mm. because as new technology is available, farmers do want to implement it, they do want to embrace it, they see the value of it, but the cost is sometimes the deterrent. So supporting Local farmers and local ag is the way to help farmers access this technology. I love it. And how do you see perhaps the tech industry maybe getting a little bit more involved? I think that the tech industry oftentimes has applications and they don't think about agriculture as a place to use that. So, for instance, new innovative ways to control pests. We have year-round pest pressures here. One of the things we looked at with smart yields is how do you monitor those pests without sending a person out to the field to count each insect. Um, We have a lot of pest pressures that are constant and will continue to be with us. That is a great area for use of new technologies.
0: Well, very good, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our Egg Hackathon that's coming up Absolutely. sometime. <laughs> anyway, Robbie Moulton is with HTDC, and of course Cindy Goldstein is with Egg Matters. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Mahalo.
4: Well, thank you for having us. And, and thank
1: you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week and we'll talk about the Make the Alawai Awesome Student Design Challenge. And of course, if
0: you miss any edition of this uh, podcast, I mean of this show, you can Find the podcast of tonight's show on Bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at ByteMarks.org. You can also find us
1: on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And please follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our ex- executive producer is Beth and Kozlovich. And we leave you with our Song
0: Pick of the Week. Here's a band called, well, by a guy named Matt Pond and a song called Love to Get Used. See you next week. On another edition of Bite Marks Cafe Happy Thanksgiving